Father in heaven, today has already been a high day. And uh, the baptism of Peter this morning at the river, and then now the baptism of Brian in the church service, these are things that thrill our hearts. Father, we've seen a lot of baptisms over the last month, and we hope and anticipate and believe that you're going to give us more baptisms in the weeks and months to come. Father, we don't want to just be a social club of cultural, generational Seventh-day Adventists here. We want to be an evangelistic, fervent community, a movement here in the Tweed. We want to be seeing people brought to Christ, come to faith, surrender to Him, and to know You through the Word. And so, Father, today it just feels like yet another opportunity to rejoice with the angels of heaven that You are bringing people to this church family into Christ. And Father, now as we open Scripture, I want to pray that you'll be with us in our ongoing study of the book of Jonah, really looking forward to what you have in store for us today. Father, be with those young ones that are going to be listening in for the answers to the questions that I sent earlier to to Ange. And may we have a great time of worship and of study. Come into this room, Father, and not just into the room, but into the hearts of the people that are in this room, and convict us in our innermost souls And help us to see not an antiquated, dusty old story, but a modern story, a story that speaks profoundly and persuasively to us here today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. Amen. All right, we continue our series on the book of, what book are we in? The book of Jonah. And this is our second of seven. Uh, Does anybody remember, what's what's the sermon series title? In the belly of a bish, I was so happy to hear one of the young people say, when, when Angela asked the question, what are we studying through? They didn't just say Jonah, they said, in the belly of a bish. And so the fact that it's, that it's lodging in your mind, and we're going to tease out exactly the meaning of that as we go through the series. Not so much today, there will be a little bit of it today. Last Sabbath, we opened up with a quotation from a well-known rapper from the United States of America named Macklemore, a challenging quotation and a quotation that I took significant issue with. Today I want to open with another quotation, this time not from a rapper but from um, Steve Jobs, one of the founders of Apple and of course uh, famous for not only founding Apple but taking it to the next level today. It's one of the most successful companies in the world, largely under the leadership of Steve Jobs. And uh, listen to this quotation here. He says, remembering that I'll be dead soon. It's a bit of a morbid quotation, a bit of a dark and almost gloomy quotation, but listen to what he says. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. A fascinating insight into the mind of one of the the great minds of the modern era. He says, one of the things that that drove me on and, and made me become what I have become is a continual conscious awareness of my own mortality, of my own death. He he didn't have these sort of visions of invincibility and of grandeur that everything was going to be fine. He was, so far as I'm aware, not a believer of any stripe, a bit of an agnostic, maybe even an atheist. And he says, look, knowing that one day I would be dead made all the small things seem really small. And it helped me to concentrate on the what he calls the big choices in life, the big choices. Well, sometimes the big choices actually are the big choices. But I'm going to suggest today that often the big choices are the small ones. The small choices that we make every day that don't seem like big choices at all, but in fact turn out to be some of the biggest decisions we'll ever make. Today is our second sermon in a seven-part series on the book of Jonah titled, In the Felly of a Bish. And today we're in part two, scene one. And our sermon title today is Nineveh or Tarshish, Up or Down. Nineveh or Tarshish, up or down. Let's review a little bit of what we talked about last week. We spent time sort of setting the table last week about the who and the what and the when and the where and the why of the book of Jonah. And it was basically just a general introductory message. And I'll just review for you that at the end of that, we talked about the structure of Jonah. Okay? There are four chapters in the book of Jonah that are divided into basically two halves, two almost equal halves, two main parts. 
Part one and part two, okay? And really conveniently for us, the first part is chapters one and two, and the second part is chapters three and four. Now, each of those parts has three scenes, and we'll get to those in just a moment. These scenes are remarkably similar, and one of the things that's fascinating about the structure of Jonah, and we noted this last week, is that it ends in a very unexpected and almost pregnant way. It ends with God asking a perturbed Jonah a very specific question, a loaded question, a pregnant question, and Jonah never answers. It ends a cliffhanger, a a book that feels in some sense like it was ended before it should have been. We'll talk about that as we make our way eventually to chapter 4. So here they are, the two parts and the three scenes. We've already noted part 1 or section 1 is the first two chapters. Section 2 is the second two chapters. And each of these scenes, as I've mentioned, is remarkably similar. Okay? Each of the two parts have the three scenes, and those three scenes are very similar between both the first two and the second two chapters. The language that I've used here to describe these scenes are the setup, the build-up, and the speak-up. The setup, the build-up, and the speak-up. So we'll have six episodes of which today will be the first. Okay? Six episodes of which today will be the first. J.P. Falkelman, in his book, Reading Biblical Narrative, an introductory guide, says this about biblical repetition. For those of you that are students of Scripture or that have spent any time reading Scripture, especially some of the Old Testament prophetic books, even the Psalms, you will notice that the Hebrews appear to be fond, very fond of repetition. We sometimes talk about this in our prophecy seminars, repeat and enlarge, repeat and enlarge. And here, J.P. Falkelman puts a sort of scholarly perspective on why the Hebrews used that repetition, okay? He says, Hebrew prose writers, as well as poets, like to use the device of, what's the device, everyone? Repetition. And they use it systematically and deliberately. At the same time, they know very well that repetition, for the sake of it, soon degenerates into monotony. This is why they developed a sophisticated technique of varied repetition, with the primary purpose of expanding the richness of meanings and keeping all sorts of surprises in store for the reader. I love this idea that right at the center of the Hebrew way of communicating is not to say something just once. These are really important things, and they're said, then they're said again, but with variance, with just enough variance to keep things interesting, and a technique that we might talk about a little bit later called information gapping, where suspense is built and and a sense of expectancy and apprehension is built, and nowhere is that truer than in the book of Jonah. Now, I made the statement last week that some of you might have found to be a little bit surprising, and that is, of all of the books of the Bible that I am personally familiar with in terms of a studied familiarity, the book of Jonah might be the most well-organized book in the whole Bible, right up there with books like the book of Revelation. Fantastically well-organized, clearly put together with intention, clearly put together with intelligence. Okay? Now, let's just sort of unpack what we mean by these Two parts, three scenes, and even a little more detail. And I've given you this this kind of simple, a little bit busy slide, but it was the simplest I could make it and still communicate everything that I wanted up there. So on the left side, you have part one, two, three, right? Those are the, the three scenes in the first half of Jonah. Think of it as a play, right? So you have three scenes before the intermission. Then you have three scenes after the intermission. Now, you'll notice that the the first scene is what I'm calling the setup, and that's what we're going to spend time on today. In fact, roughly what we'll be doing over the next six weeks is looking at episode one of part one, episode two of part one, episode three of part one, and then we'll go to the scenes of, of part two. So most of our time today will be spent on just chapter one, verses one to three, just three verses, okay? And this is what I'm calling the setup, okay? Now, in the setup, we're going to see that there's just two characters there. Jonah and Yahweh. In fact, as we noted last week, the only two people that are named, the only two persons, I should say, that are named in the whole book of Jonah are Yahweh and Jonah. That's it. Right? The the book has this, and we've talked about this, this almost sort of um, unusual, unexpected feel about it. There's no historical moorings. There's, There's no real sense of where you are or who's around. It's just like this interrelationship between Jonah and God and God and Jonah. Okay? So scene one today will be the setup, God's call of Jonah. Then we'll deal next week with the build-up, which would be Jonah's interaction with the Gentiles on the ship. 
And then finally, the speak up, which is the language I'm using for the point. The point of part one, and that's when Jonah then calls on God. Now, this is the remarkable point. Notice then the, the episodes in the second half of the book. They are basically the same, okay? In the setup, God calls Jonah. And I want you to see this. If you've got the book of Jonah open there, hopefully you do. It's right toward the end of the Old Testament. Just take a look at the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1. We're going to go back through them a little more slowly here in a moment. But let me just read through them so you get a feel for their basic shape. So Jonah chapter 1, first three verses. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Those are the verses that we're going to spend our time on. Now, before we get into parsing those verses, just take a quick look over at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Okay, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, and notice the unmistakable similarities. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Do you see how the verses are almost identical? Episode 1 in part 1 and episode 1 in part 2 are basically identical. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. The word is arise and go to Nineveh in both episodes. In both episodes, Jonah arises. In the first episode, as we're going to see today, he arises to flee. In the second episode, he arises to go to Nineveh. Okay? So these are sort of the two pillars, the setup, that are going to orient us toward the big story that the book of Jonah is telling. Then we have the build-up. Jonah and the Gentiles, they're in the city of Nineveh. And then finally, the speak up where once again, Jonah calls on God. This time, not for mercy, but out of frustration out of frustration and anger. He calls on God and says, God, why has this happened in the way it has happened? Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting, and this was a bit new to me. I guess it was new to me in the book of Jonah. I was generally aware of it. And this might be fresh to you as well. Is that the book of Jonah follows a really remarkable and consistent biblical template for the, what we might call the prophetic call or a call of commissioning, okay? What we find are several instances in Scripture where God makes a call on a prophet and the prophet's response to God's call follows a very fascinating template, okay? Now, as we read through this template here, points one to five, I want you to think about, for example, the call of Moses, or the call of Jeremiah, or the call of Gideon, or the call of Jonah. There are others, but these are the ones that really fit the template nicely, at least the ones that came to my mind. Notice them here. In the prophetic call, we see that it opens with the divine commission. I need you to do something. In the case of Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. In the case of Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them that their evil has come up before me. Okay, You have this, this divine call, but then you have an objection on the part of the prospective prophet to the commission. No, I can't for some reason. Right In the case of Moses, I can't go because I don't know the language. I can't go because Pharaoh won't listen to me. Fascinatingly, and in a slight break from this basic pattern, Jonah gives no reason for his objection. There, there is no verbiage. All it says is that Jonah arose... And this almost sort of leads the reader to believe that he's going to arise to go to Nineveh because that's the very thing that God has said. Arise and go to Nineveh. And then it says, so Jonah arose. But he doesn't arise to go to Nineveh. He arises to flee. And there's no, we never are told in chapters 1, 2, or 3 why he objects to going to Nineveh. It's left to the reader to sort of put himself or herself into the story and say, well, why not? Why didn't we, he go? In fact, it's all the way until chapter 4 before we are told. This is what I was talking about a moment ago called information gapping, where, where we're not told something that we feel like we should know that's central and essential to the story. So Jonah doesn't object verbally, but he objects physically. He, obse- he objects by way of flight. Okay, So you have the objection to commission. Then you have a divine rebuke and reassurance. 
God responds to the prospective prophet. Everything will be fine with a little bit of a rebuke. We see this with Gideon. We see this with Moses. We see this with Jeremiah. And we see it with Jonah. Then there's some sort of a symbolic act or miracle. In the case of Gideon, it was the fleece. In the case of Moses, it was the leprous hand or the staff that turned into the snake. And in the case of Jonah, it's being swallowed by a great fish and then released alive. And then finally, there is the commission being clarified and carried out. And so in a really purposeful and intentional way, what's happening in the book of Jonah is that the author of the book of Jonah, again, who we, we don't know who the author is. We know we're not given any sense of time or place, or a place we certainly are, but time or historical moorings to the book of Jonah. We're, we're simply introduced to Jonah. We're introduced to the commission in an almost startling way. Jonah's objection by way of flight is consistent with the basic way that prophetic calls happen regularly in Scripture. Now, let's go back through these verses more carefully, and let's see if we can spend the next 30 to 40 minutes in just three verses. Is there enough depth here to plumb in just three verses in a seemingly easy book, a children's story of a book? In fact, there is so much information floating around in my head right now that that it's impossible that I'm not going to forget several things that I really want to say to you. There's that much depth. There's that much density here. So let's go. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Pause right there. Already this is unique among every other prophetic book for several reasons. Jonah is unique on several accounts. But one of the reasons that it's unique is that no other prophetic book opens exactly this way. We're we're usually oriented to who was the king, under what circumstances they were king, the son of somebody, the son of somebody, the son of somebody. And then we're told there's the call. There is no orientation to context. There is no orientation to history. There is no situational orientation here. It simply says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And some scholars believe that this is purposeful. I agree. That it's designed to create a sort of startling sense of surprise. Like, where are we? What's happening? Under what circumstances does the call come? Simply, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. And the word in my Bible is arise. Anybody else here have that? Arise. Arise. Anybody have anything else other than arise? Arise. The word literally is up in the Hebrew. It's up. Arise in the English has that same sort of up scent. Arise. Up. Now, this is kind of interesting. God's call to Jonah is directional and urgent. Up. Up. Now, I don't think this is anything I've ever shared before publicly, but, but I've known this for several years, and you might find this kind of interesting as an aside. It's a bit of a fascinating point. I don't think I've ever shared it. Probably six or seven years ago, I was sitting with uh, good friends of mine, um, Ger- uh, Gerard and Marigold Ardron, sitting in their home there in Sonora, California. And Marigold is Egyptian. And uh, her father was there. And her father said to me, hey, you want to hear something very interesting? And I said, yeah, yeah, wh- wh- what is it? And he said, your name, Ashrik, sounds very much like an Arabic word. And I said, oh, what's the word? And he said, the word is ashruk. Ashruk. And so I said, oh, what does it mean? And he said, it means arise. So I was, I was actually not sure about that. So I looked it up in Google. And Sam, you're probably the only person in here that I know of that could potentially read that. Can you read that, Sam? Oh, you can read it. He says it. Okay. There's my name. But it's actually not, of course, my name. The word is ashruk, and it means arise, shone, brighten, radiate. I actually typed it into Google Translate this morning just to be sure. I put in arise in Arabic, and there's about 42 different words, ways to say arise in Arabic. It's a very, you know, lots of words in Arabic, similar to English in that regard. And I went down, and I was listening to all of them. Did any of them sound like ashruk? And none of them did. And then all of a sudden, on the little Google Translator, it says... Ashrik. Quite fascinating, right? So, so of course, uh, the, the language that, that God is speaking to Jonah here is not Arabic, but the idea is up, arise, right? If he had been speaking Arabic, he would have said Ashrik, 
I love that. Absolutely love it. I didn't know that, by the way, when we called the school to rise some 17 or 18 years ago. I just think it's a happy little serendipitous moment where God is saying, you're doing what I want you to be doing. God's call not only to Jonah was directional and urgent. We are, the reader is, is supposed to be placing himself or herself into the story so that we feel in some sense, yes, up, up. Now, the use of this word, up, is purposeful because it's directional. Up. But we're going to find that as the story of Jonah unfolds, he will, in fact, move directionally, but he will not move in the direction that God has commanded and invited him to move. Up. Look at verse 2. Up. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. This must have sounded totally, patently, and utterly absurd to Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh. This is unique in Hebrew prophecy. There is no other Hebrew prophet or prophecy where the prophet was called exclusively and singularly to go to a foreign nation to prophesy against it. All of the prophets are speaking either to Judah or to Israel or to both. And so there are several really strong senses in which Jonah is unique among the prophets. He's unique in that there's no strong historical moorings for the story. Also unique in the sense that, that, that he is told simply, go to Nineveh and preach. Nineveh? Maybe Jerusalem, but not Nineveh. Maybe to Judea but not Nineveh, maybe to Israel. So at some level, the reader should feel confronted and startled by this invitation. Up, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was probably not at this time, but would soon after be the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire in the sort of 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries BC was the closest thing that we would have today to like a superpower. Okay, this is the very power, by the way, Assyria, that in the middle of the seventh century will take Israel captive and and basically do what Israel will be gone from the face of the earth because of Assyrian cruelty and captivity. So so the invitation about 100 years earlier for Jonah to go to Nineveh, what will become what was one of the most significant cities and will become the capital city in Assyria would have sounded totally insane and absurd. It would have sounded dangerous. It would have sounded confronting. It was exactly the kind of thing that you would expect, not expect to hear. Okay? His call is directional. Come up. Now, I've just given you a little map here to sort of orient you. This is Joppa. This is where Jonah is going to board the ship. Okay? This is where Jonah is going to board the ship. Take a look at verse 3. But Jonah arose, same word as up. Jonah did get up to flee. To Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa. He went down to Joppa. He descended, is the word, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. To go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. These are the three verses we're going to spend the rest of our time on today. So here's Joppa, right near Jerusalem, basically the equivalent of modern-day Tel Aviv in Israel, modern Israel. Now, you'll notice where Nineveh is at. It's to the north and the east, and that is about 900 kilometers away, roughly the same distance from, uh, I'll use an Australian example, roughly the same distance from Gold Coast to Canberra. Okay, an American example, Seattle to San Francisco. Okay, arise and go, no small distance. And not just a reasonably large distance, but a reasonably large distance into what could only be regarded as enemy territory. And not just to any ordinary place in enemy territory, not some hideaway, not some secluded, you know, desert hideaway, but to Nineveh, that great city. Now, this is quite interesting. Where do you think Tarshish might be on the map? Yeah, very good. Very good. I heard somebody say Spain. This is probably where Tarshish was. We can't be absolutely certain, but most scholars believe that Tarshish was located on the southern end of the Iberian Peninsula. 
Now, let me give you a feel for how far that is away. That's like 3,800 kilometers. To use another Australian analogy, that's Gold Coast to Perth. Okay? And an American analogy, that's Seattle to Bogota, Colombia. Okay? That's, that's all the way through Mexico, all the way through Central America, through North America, and to the, the northernmost part of South America. This is a long distance. Okay? Now, you'll notice that it is due west. God's call is to the north and to the east. And Jonah seeks to flee, and this is key, it says it twice, from the presence of Yahweh. From the presence of Yahweh all the way to Tarshish. Now, why is this significant for Jonah? Why is Jonah called to go on such a seemingly absurd mission? Well, you will recall from last week, the only other mention that we have in the Old Testament of Jonah is from 2 Kings chapter 14, which is the only way that we can sort of vaguely or generally date when Jonah would have been around and when he would have carried out this mission to Nineveh. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. He restored the territory of, what's the word there? Israel. Now, you know the story because we've been through the Old Testament. The story of, of Israel and Judah is fragmentation, first of all, into the ten tribes of Israel, the two tribes of Judah. Okay, This is somewhere in about the 8th century B.C. So there's massive fragmentation. Borders are being compromised. The, the story of the Old Testament is basically the ongoing encroachment of the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Philistines. So, so the borders are being compromised again and again and again. But, but in the time of the 14th king of Israel, Jeroboam II, the Solomonic borders were restored. It was really good news. It was a sense of security. It was a sense of safety. It was a sense of, of solidification in our national boundaries and thus our national identity. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah according to the word of Yahweh, God of Israel. Who gave this amazing word that the territory of Israel would be restored? Which he had spoken through his servant. What's his name? Jonah. Which Jonah? Oh, the son of Amittai. Where is he from? He's the prophet that was from Gath Heifer. So in a really ironic way, we mentioned last week that there's satire, there's parody, there's irony wrapped up in the story of Jonah. The prophet who was responsible for the announcement of the good news under the wicked king Jeroboam II, that, that the borders would be secure, the borders would be solidified, and the original Solomonic borders would be reestablished. Israel will have its borders secure and safe, and we will be here, and they will be there, us and them. It's more than a little ironic that the call to go outside of those newly established borders would come to Jonah. To Jonah. God's plan in the call of Abraham was always universal and never parochial. I'm going to spend some time on this. When God had originally called Abraham as the father of Israel and of Judah, when God had called Abraham, what was the divine intent? To what end was Abraham called? To preserve his DNA? Was it because there was something particularly special or righteous about Abraham? Why the call of Abraham? Well, I'm suggesting here that the intent was universal and never parochial or provincial. Here is the original call. Genesis chapter 12, this is a passage that we have reflected on many times in my three-year pastorate here so far. We'll do it again and probably we'll do it again and again and again. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Let me just quickly remind you of what's happened. We have raced through Genesis chapter 1 to 11, some 2,000 years of human history, in five events. Creation, fall, murder, flood, tower. That's Genesis 1 to 11. As soon as we get to Genesis 12, on to the end of Genesis chapter 50, that whole, all those 39 chapters cover some almost, maybe not more than 300 to 400 years of human history. And the whole thing is the story of Abraham and his family. So as we've noted before, Moses races through some almost 2,000 years of human history in five events just to get to the story of Abraham, and no sooner does he get to the story of Abraham than he slams on the brakes and slows down and starts telling very specific, intimate details about Abraham and his family. This is how that story begins, the Abrahamic story. To put it in very simple language, 
Moses, in writing Genesis, was not setting out to write an Encyclopedia Britannica of the early anthropology of, of Earth. No. He was just racing to get through the details that he had to get through to get to the Abrahamic story. Because for Moses, and for all Bible writers, the Abrahamic story is the central story of Scripture. And listen carefully. What's taking place in the book of Jonah is symbolically a reversal of the call of Abraham. And this is why God meets it with such force and such, such passion. Let's see that in just a second. So here it is. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you, Abram, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And right up to this point, it feels kind of elitist. It feels kind of favoritism. It kind of feels like God liked Abraham more than everybody else. But what we find is that God was not giving something to Abraham so much as through Abraham. Notice the final bit here. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And here's the punchline. And in you and your descendants, Abram, later to be Abraham, all of the families or the nations, many translations say, of the earth will be blessed. So the point of the call of Abraham is not about Abraham. It's about what Abraham has been called to do. And what Abraham was called to do was not parochial or provincial or regional. What Abraham was called to do was to bless all the families of the earth including the Ninevites. We can begin to see why the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is so significant because at the Tower of Babel, all the families of the earth were distributed to their geographical and linguistic areas and their, 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 their different places. Now there was them and 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 we were just one. Us was one of them. And immediately after the dispersion in Babel, is the call of Abraham where God says, I don't like this fragmentation. I don't want there to be us and them. I only want there to be us. And Abraham, in you, all the families and nations of the earth will be blessed. I'll put this thing back together through my call of you. Now, I love the way the contemporary English version says this. Everyone on earth will be blessed because of you. Here we see that Abram and the call of Abraham was not an end in himself, but a means to an end. Again, not that the truth was given primarily to Abraham, but through Abraham. He was a conduit, a vehicle, a channel for the whole world to receive the blessings of Yahweh. Now we've studied through the Old Testament here and we've learned that that ambitious original call and intent was largely thwarted by both Israel and Judah. And in the case of Jonah, it's being thwarted by Jonah, but in a way that strikes at the very heart of God's intention for Israel. Notice why I say that. Here's the call of Abraham in five simple points. He was called out of Ur, Mesopotamia. He was called away from what is known and secure, from your land, from your father's house. He was called beyond his borders to other nations, nations that would bring him sometimes, or situations that would bring him sometimes to dangerous locations and situations. We see this in the book of Genesis, where his nephew Lot is kidnapped, and it's a dangerous situation, and he has to rally a bunch of people from within his own home to go recover Lot. Dangerous, hostile situations. And finally, number five, to be a blessing to the whole world. Now, this is quite interesting. Here's our map that we looked at earlier, and notice where Ur is. This whole area here is what's called Mesopotamia. It means the land between the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Jonah's call was go to Mesopotamia. Abraham's call was come out of Mesopotamia. Come out. The call of Abram. This is why when we come to New Testament passages like Galatians 3, we read passages like this that just jump off of the page if we're reading Scripture contextually, if we're reading the narrative of Scripture. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither us nor them. 
There is neither slave nor free. The first is a national distinction and a theological distinction and a religious distinction. The second is a social and a socioeconomic distinction. Rich and poor, slave and free. And the third is a biological distinction. There is neither male nor female, for you are all, what is it? You are all one in Jesus. Now notice what he says in the, in the remainder of that verse, or the very next verse actually. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's descendants and you are heirs. You are inheritors according to the promise. What promise? Well, the original promise. The promise found embryonically back in Genesis where God said to Abraham, Abraham, in you all the earth will be blessed. And so Paul, he sees in what Christ has done. Christ has not only brought recovery vertically, Christ has brought recovery horizontally so that there's no longer black and white and you and me and us and them. Now there's just us. If you're all one, as Paul says, no national distinctions, no racial distinctions, no socioeconomic distinctions, no gender-based distinctions. If we are all one, then there's not a them, there's an us. Love this. The call of Abraham. Now notice this. Notice this next slide I'm going to give you here. I'm just going to quickly make the shift to the call of Jonah. And you'll notice very few words will change on the screen. Very few words. Here's the call of Abraham as I've already presented it. And then I'll quickly shift it to the call of Jonah. And notice that almost nothing changed. Jonah is called to Assyria or Mesopotamia. Same area. He is called away from the known and the secure, beyond his borders to another nation, to a dangerous location and situation, to be a blessing to his wider world. So if Jonah had understood what was happening, when he heard, up, up, go to Nineveh, he would have readily, enthusiastically received the baton, knowing, wow, Under my prophetic call in ministry, it was not only the establishment and securing of our borders, but now it's time to do what Israel was always supposed to do, to go beyond our borders. But Jonah, like his contemporaries, had lost sight of the Abrahamic mission and call. They had thought that what was really taking place was something parochial and provincial, and and it's about the Jews. It's about us. And we need to be afraid of those people and afraid of those people and afraid of those people. One of the things that's going to happen in the book of Jonah is you're going to find yourself experiencing a kind of parody, a reversal of fortunes. We talked about this last week with the parallels between Genesis and Jonah and how in the, in the flood, the wicked world was under the water and the, 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 the righteous were in a boat safe. The reversal of that takes place in the story of Jonah. The wicked prophet is under the water and the wicked Gentiles, seemingly wicked, but actually repenting and rejoicing Gentiles are safe in the boat. So you're designed to experience, if you're reading the book of Jonah right, you should find yourself chuckling at certain occasions and saying, what? In response to the call to go to Nineveh, The very prophet who had prophesied the establishment of Israel's borders is now seemingly the one that God says, and you will take the message. You will be the front runner. You will be on the cutting edge, the avant-garde of bringing the Abrahamic call to full fruition. Bring the message to the Ninevites. And so Jonah arose and fled. He arose and fled. Friends, there's a few lessons here that are already staring us square in the face. And one of them is on the screen here. And that is that danger with God is safer than safety without Him. Danger with God is safer than safety without Him. When, Nineveh th- when Jonah thinks of the best possible location to flee from the presence of Yahweh, he thinks, how far west can I go? I'll go to Tarshish. Another way to say that is this, Nineveh with God is better than Tarshish without him. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Nineveh with God, danger with God, awkwardness with God, discomfort with God, difficulty with God is always better than every other possibly good conceivable situation without God. Nineveh with with Yahweh 
is far preferable. I mean, the southern part of the Iberian Peninsula, if you've been to Spain or Portugal, is a fantastically beautiful, semi-tropical area. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to Tarshish? But Tarshish without Yahweh is a dangerous, terrible place. And Nineveh with Yahweh is where you want to take your vacation. That's where you want to be. I believe that God is calling our church away from safety and toward godly risk. Do you believe that? When I look out there, I, I want to I see by faith a bunch of risk takers. And when I say our church, I don't just mean the global Seventh-day Adventist church. I mean our local Kingscliff church. We're a little too comfortable, a little too secure. It's a little too easy. These chairs are maybe not as comfortable as our last chair, Scotty, but still sufficiently comfortable. Love the new facilities. It looks great. I'm excited to be broadcasting all over the world shortly. But the point is this. This is a really safe, really secure location. Many of you have been going to this church for decades, right? And you went to the church before this church was ever planted. There's a sort of parochial safety and security here. You know the people. You know their families. In fact, half of this church is related. More than half, a full two-thirds, right? Thanks to Milton and Betty. God rest his soul. So there's, there's a familial feel here. There's a, there's a parochial, provincial, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's a lot right with it. It's what makes this church the happy, buzzing, familial place that it is. But maybe it's a little too comfortable. And what I would love to see with this media ministry and with the life groups and the servolution is that we orient ourselves away from safety, away from comfort, away from security to godly risk. Man, that was a great opportunity to say amen. If you'd been in America, you would have said amen. You would have said a loud amen right then. To orient ourselves away from safety and security and comfort and get uncomfortable. Nineveh was not only outside of the borders of Israel, it was outside of Jonah's comfort zone. And if as a church we are doing things that are mostly comfortable, we are not doing the right things. If as a church we are doing things that are mostly not risky, and I'm talking financially risky, socially risky, if we're not engaged in some level of risk, are we fulfilling the Abrahamic call? Are we fulfilling the call that God has to the church? Look at this. God had this amazing promise in Isaiah 66 that he would convert even Tarshish. God's call, God loves the people in Tarshish as well, but Jonah's call wasn't to Tarshish. And here's this pregnant little promise in Isaiah 66, right at the close of the great gospel prophet. Look at this. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, says Yahweh. They will come and see my glory. I will send them to the nations, to Tarshish. That was as, further, that was as far west as you could go because in the Hebrew mindset, in the Semitic mindset, the Atlantic Ocean is an unknown, unnavigated, unbridled body of water. I mean, Tarshish is just about as far west as you can get in their world. And here Yahweh says, I'm going to bring people even from Tarshish and Pul and Lud who draw the bow and Tubal and Jab. And these are exotic locations to the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then shall they bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations. And I will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. Some of those people from Tarshish, some of those people from Pol and Lud will become like priests in my temple. This is not a parochial, Jewish, genetic, Abrahamic thing that's happening. This is a thing that's happening for the world. Another good opportunity to say amen that you missed. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Right there in Scripture is a promise. God's like, yeah, I'm going to take care of Tarshish, but that's not where I called you, Jonah. I called you to Nineveh. And then you got out your travelogue, or you got on orbits.com, and you said, how far away can I get from God's call? Oh, look at this. Jonah's flight represents all that was wrong with Israel, parochial, provincial, safe, and secure. It was a, revuls, a reversal of God's original intent in calling Abraham and his descendants. 
In fact, for those of you that are paying attention, you will remember that when we looked at those parallels with Genesis last week, I said as the story of Jonah moves forward, 1, 2, 3, 4, the story of Genesis 1 to 12 moves backward. There are all these signal indicators that in a brilliant, technically precise and sophisticated way, the story that the author of Jonah wants you to hear is this is a reversal of God's intent. You, you should be alarmed at this. You should, you should find yourself angry. And as the story turns out, Jonah will be angry, but for all the wrong reasons. And we'll get there. God's call of Israel wasn't about borders. It was about blessings. Can somebody say amen? You! God's call of our church isn't about keeping people out, but getting them in. Can somebody say amen? Lord have mercy. This last big camp, I've said this before, but I wanted to show you the webpage just to encourage you once again. This last big camp, we just had a good friend of mine, Pastor Stephen Merkovich, come to the Connections Tent. Many of you were there. And he preached a series on our theme was church. And the messages were so good and so challenging that uh, my, my associate there in the tent, um, Dr. Glenn Hughes from Alstonville, he, he put up a website, a Facebook page where you could get all of the messages. And this is the website. I want to encourage you all to go listen to those seven sermons. I've, sh- I've shown you here how you do it. You just go, you just type in Connections Tent 2017 into Facebook. Connections Tent 2017. Listen to those seven sermons. They are profoundly challenging as to what God is calling the church to be in this day and age. I have tempted just to preach his sermons, but I'm not going to do it. If you drag down just a little bit on that Facebook page, you'll come to this one right here, April 21, and you just open up this link right here, and all of the sermons are in a Dropbox file. You just download them. All the sermons are there. So are all the testimonies, a sermon that I preached on Sabbath morning, a, a sermon that Kim preached. All, all, everything there went really well, but I want you to hear Stephen Merkovich's sermons. If I could somehow magically or, or by some technology transmit those sermons and the knowledge of those sermons into your head right now, I would do it. You need to hear them. Man, they're just right at the core of what's happening here with Jonah. Now let's go to our last verse, verse 3. Verse 3 is so technically precise. I want to say this again. The book of Jonah was written by a very intelligent, sophisticated person to what he assumed would be a sufficiently intelligent and sophisticated audience to hear what he was saying. And this is a classic case in point. Look at this. Look at this. Look at the precision in verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This verse is a classic Hebrew chiasm, which you have here out, which I've, I've here outlined for you. A, B, C, B, A. And in a chiastic structure, a, parallel, a, a, a chiastic parallelism, you have A corresponding with A, B corresponding with B, and C as the main point. So take a look. A, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. A at the bottom. To go with him to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence. B, he went down to Joppa. B, the second B, he went down into the ship. And here's the point, right at the center. In a marvelous lapidary use of of chiasm, he found a ship bound for Tarshish and he hired it. And this is really interesting. In the Hebrew, he hired it as as the the, the object of the verb, the subject of the verb, the feminine, the ship. Now, this is fascinating because the ship in Hebrew is feminine. And this has led many Jewish expositors to suggest, and even Christian expositors to suggest, that, that Jonah hired the whole ship. He didn't just buy a fare on an existing ship. There's a desperation here. He is fleeing hastily, trying to get away from Yahweh's presence. And what does it take? Is anybody going to Tarshish? Nobody's going. Anybody to Tarshish? I need to get away from the presence of Yahweh. And finally, he spends money to hire the whole ship to go on a journey that's the equivalent of Gold Coast to Perth. That distance. He hires the whole ship And friends, the takeaway here is unmistakable. Disobedience is costly in more ways than one. A vacation to Tarshish without God will cost you far more than a few shekels. It could cost you a tour of the subterranean, subaquatic deaths in the belly of a great fish. Disobedience is costly in more ways than one. Now, look at this. This is almost unbelievable. 
Psalm 103. I'm going I'm to read you Psalm 103. The verb is the same. Some went down. It's the verb descend. Jonah descended to Joppa. He descended into the ship. And by the way, his, his descent is not done. We'll be descending next week as well and the week after. But look at this. It's almost unbelievable, this psalm. The, the, the connectivity and the beauty of Scripture, the internal connectivity and beauty of Scripture is phenomenal. Look at this. Psalm 103. This should jump off the page at you. Listen to the story of Jonah in this and tell me if you don't just see it. I mean, you have to see it. It's just so obvious. Some went down into the sea in ships doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of Yahweh, his wondrous works in the deep. The psalmist continues, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. This is the story of Jonah. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Remember when the sailors tried to row to shore? Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. It is an almost perfect recapitulation of the Jonah story. It sounds like the Jonah story. And the point here, we made it last week, we'll make it again here, is because the Jonah story is not an isolated historical incident. The Jonah story is your story. The Jonah story is your story. You may have never been in the belly of a fish, but you may today be in the belly of a bish. And we'll continue to unpack the meaning of that as the series continues. Jonah saw his flight primarily on the horizontal plane. Oh, I'm in Joppa. Nineveh is to the north and the east. I will go west. This is the punchline of the whole message, so I hope you get this. Jonah saw what he was doing on the horizontal plane, but God saw what Jonah was doing on the vertical plane. Up! But Jonah went down to Joppa. Then he went down into the ship. And this is just the beginning of his descent. Sometimes we think we're moving horizontally. We are merely making horizontal decisions. I want to tell you something. Our horizontal decisions are not seen by God only in the horizontal realm. Even if blinded to us, even if, if, if unnoticed uh, uh, to us, we are moving in the vertical realm with our horizontal decisions. We are either up, Jonah, or we are descending into the ship, and to Joppa. The only alternative to living in God's presence, says Kevin J. Youngblood, and embracing the challenge of Yahweh's call is to descend into chaos and death. Those are your options. You go with God, or you go into chaos and death. He may think that he is headed for distant and exotic places when he flees from Yahweh, but in reality is headed only to the grave. Disobedience is costly, and the rejection of Yahweh's presence necessarily means the forfeiture of his benefits. Look at this. C.S. Lewis, one of my all-time favorite C.S. Lewis quotations. Lewis says, God cannot give us happiness or peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That's not an option available to God to give you happiness apart from him. If you go to Tarshish without Yahweh, there's no happiness there. It doesn't matter how white the sands are or how warm the water is or how good the snorkeling is. There is no happiness apart from Yahweh. Meaning and transcendence and beauty and, and the real sus substance of life is found in God. Happiness is found in God because he is himself the source of happiness. This is why we say Nineveh with Yahweh is better than Tarshish without him. Psalm 139, the psalmist years before had asked this very same question. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Jonah sought to flee from the presence of Yahweh. Some of us try to flee from the presence of God. You say, whoa, 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 I never did that. I never got on a ship bound for Tarshish. No, but you watched that movie. You watched that ungodly escape because life was just a little too hard, a little too difficult. And you just, you just needed to unwind. 
And you knew, you knew that it was the kind of movie that you wouldn't invite Jesus to come watch with you or the angels to come watch with you. Or if your children had walked in, you'd be embarrassed you were watching it. But you just needed an escape. You thought you were moving in the horizontal plane and God saw it in the vertical. It's not limited, of course, to movies. It's any number of escapisms that we have. We are the generation that is married to escape. Because reality is so apparently boring or painful that we have to be in a continual state, a catatonic, hypnotic state of staring at these stupid little rectangles. The world would be infinitely better if they could be uninvented. You don't need to go to Tarshish. You just need to pick up your phone. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. God knows the websites that we go to. God knows the thoughts that we think. God knows the movies that we watch. God knows the things that we think about, the way that we spend our money. You can't flee from the presence of Yahweh. If I take the wings of the morning, says the psalmist, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, maybe Tarshish, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me will be night. Not, 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 not. Even the darkness is not dark to you, Yahweh. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is like the light to you. And then this, how precious are your thoughts, O God. God's posture toward you, if you look at that pornographic website or you watch that ridiculous, violent movie, or if you speak about that person in that unkind, gossip, and hateful way, God's posture to you is not a posture of condemnation. In fact, that's the big story of the book of Jonah. We're going to see it again and again. God's mercy toward those who are undeserving. God's posture toward you, even when you're fleeing to Tarshish, is not a posture of condemnation or contempt and certainly not a posture of hate. It's a posture of love and of paternal care. The psalmist says, man, I was trying to flee from your presence. I ended up in hell itself. And then when I thought about it, Jonah remembered Yahweh. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. Oh, friends, there's nothing that will dissolve the stain and the guilt of sin away as a strong sense of God's tremendous love and compassion for you, even when you're in the midst of sin. In fact, when you are in your greatest need, His love is totally and infinitely available. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count how good your positive thoughts are toward me, Oh, they'd be more than the sands of the sea. When I awake, I am still with you. Friends, are you with God? It's better to be with Him in Nineveh than away from Him in Tarshish. It's better to have cancer with Yahweh than to have health without Him. It's better to have trial with Yahweh than to have ease without Him. It's better to have social awkwardness and difficulty as a teenager when you stand up for what's right than to have the acceptance of your peers without Him. It's better to have, I know this is going to be a big one, it would be better to have no smartphones with Yahweh than to have smartphones without Him. It's, it's a big one. It's huge. Friends, God is not someone to flee from. Say it with me. He is someone to flee Two. You don't believe me? Look at this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek the things that are above not just the horizontal, but the vertical, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, vertical, not on the things of the earth, horizontal. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the central mistake that Adam and Eve made. They tried to hide from God. And Paul says, God is not someone you hide from. They should have been running to him. Father, we made a big mistake. You hide in God, not from him. He's that kind of a God when you're at your lowest, when you're at your worst, when you're at your most cruel or unkind or debauched or lustful. God is so available to you and his positive thoughts are so big toward you that if you could count them, they would be more than the sands of the sea. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, you will be with him in glory, says Paul. So landing this plane, see, going to land the plane. Jonah saw his flight horizontally. God saw it vertically. I want to challenge you today that very few decisions that you make horizontally do not orient you vertically one way or the other. I, I said very few. 
Things that you might take to be innocuous or small. Steve Jobs said, the big decisions. I kept a continual sense of my mortality in front of me. So when I made the big decisions, friends, not just when you make the big choices, but the little ones. Like Jonah, we tend to see life horizontally, but God sees our life and he sees our choices vertically. And again, I just have to say this because you probably don't believe it, some of you, even though I'm going to say it again. God's posture toward you when you make a horrifically bad choice, like to flee from his presence, is not a posture of condemnation, but of compassion. In Christ, his posture toward you is one of compassion, one of acceptance. His positive thoughts toward you are so big, so grand, so amazing that they outnumber the very sands of the sea. Believe that. Because the thing that keeps you away, many of you away from Christ, is a sense that that your shame, your internal sense of guilt is actually a reflection of God's thoughts toward you. No! That's just something that's happening in your body and in your brain. God's thoughts toward you are positive and and salvific and reconciliatory. He longs to receive you as the prodigal son was received by his father. He ran to receive him. When you're in the lowest depths, when you've done it again and again and again and again and again and again, God's posture toward you has not changed. He longs to have you turn to him. He might have to put you in the belly of a bish to do it. Or, in the case of Jonah, in the belly of a fish. But when you remember Yahweh and you turn to Him, He receives you with open arms, with love, with mercy, forgiveness, compassion, and fatherly paternal care. Remembering that I'll be dead soon, said Jobs, is the most important tool I ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. I'd like to suggest here today that it's not just the big choices that are vertical in their basic orientation. It's the little choices. Sometimes the big choices actually are big choices, but often the big choices are the small choices. Like who to follow on Instagram, for those of you that are under the age of 40. Sorry if you're over 40 and have an Instagram account. That's a small choice, but I found in my own experience, I've implemented a basic policy I don't mind telling you the policy because I'm a red-blooded man and I have a beautiful wife, but I find other women attractive. Here's my policy. If a site that I'm following puts up a picture of herself or of somebody else, of a woman that is dressed less than desirably, they are unfollowed on the first time. I don't need... I, I just found that as I was following this surfer or that surfer or sometimes even this church member or that church member, I would see things. I thought, I don't, I, how can I unsee that? These are just small choices, but you know what? It's amazing when I can now go to my Instagram feed or to, 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 my, to my web browser and know that there's a safety there, there's a security there. I don't, I don't have to be on the lookout for what I might see because I can't unsee stuff. I made what looked like a really small horizontal step that actually had vertical implications in my life. It made it easier for me to be a godly man made it easier for me to turn away from things that were already trying to draw me in. I told you last week that I'm taking the no sugar challenge. And uh, I'm still going strong. Reuben, are you going strong? Eli, going strongish or strong? Strong. Jabel, how you doing? Good. Landon? There's five of us in the no sugar challenge. Anybody else welcome to join? The no sugar challenge till January. You think, oh, I don't eat that much sugar. Try not eating it. See, I've just made a little decision. And don't get me wrong. I don't think for a moment that my eating a little bit of sugar jeopardized my salvation. But you know what I think it did do? It, it's making me a better person. Not everything has to be salvational to be beneficial. That's the question that Christians so often ask. This is not a salvational issue. This is not. Who cares if it's a salvational issue? Is it a beneficial issue? Now, lusting after women and doing that, that's absolutely, it hats hands off. You can't do that. What I'm saying here, friends, is that you start making little choices, and those little choices have vertical implications. Of course, the big choices have vertical implications, but we sometimes say, well, the big choices, I'll make the right decision. But on all these little choices, whether or not to be kind to somebody, to speak ill of somebody, to not tell the full story when I know good and well that I'm purposely withholding details that incriminate the other person, to be moody and just sort of annoying and obnoxious just because you feel like it, why not be pleasant and kind and... You get the point. 
Friends, the question is up or down? Suffer down. Nineveh or Tarshish? Which will it be? God's called to Nineveh. Up! And Jonah's response was to go down, down. And we have only begun the depths of Jonah's descent. I want to close by making an appeal. How many of you want to say with me, Jesus, in the big choices, and even in the seemingly little choices, by your grace, by your spirit, and with a continual sense of your compassionate, caring, and accepting posture toward me, I want to make choices that will orient me up, not down. Anybody want to resonate with that today? I want to make the up choices, not the down choices, because the down choices are not the big ones always. They could be the little ones, those little choices. Friends, we're only three verses in, and already we've got a lot to chew on. Can you say amen? Already we've got a lot to chew on. Next week we're going to be in, if you want to read ahead so that you're ready to go, next week we'll be in verses 4 to about the end of the chapter. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, today we are all like Jonah or have been like Jonah. Some of us are in a state right now of Jonah-ness, and others have come out of Jonah-ness. And Father, I suppose others could not even yet be Jonah, have not even yet heard the call, up! Father, I just pray for the teens, I pray for the 20s. In the 30s and the 40s and everything above, I pray for all the members of this church at whatever situation that they find themselves at in life right now. Are they early life? Are they teen? Are they preteen? Are they midlife? Are they in the twilight years of their life? At whatever stage we are, Father, what a testimony to see Brian at the young age of 80 climb into that baptistry and say, I'm so happy I found this now. Father, wherever we are, whatever the horizon, the vista is that we are at, the place that we are at in our life. Father, the prayer of my heart for this church is that we wouldn't take it easy and that we wouldn't be safe and secure and comfortable, but that we would begin to engage in godly risk, not the worldly risk of fleeing to Tarshish, not the worldly risk of putting things into our brains that are compromising us vertically, but that we would take the godly risk of saying, you know what, a financial risk a social risk, a personal risk, a career risk that puts Yahweh at the center. That's not risky at all. There is no risk when we put God first. But there is infinite risk when we turn. So Father, give us a strong sense, not only of the horizontal, which so occupies our thoughts and attention. We live in the horizontal world. But Father, give us an increasingly strong sense of the vertical world. Father, help us to have a strong sense of your presence. And to not in our folly try to flee from the presence of Yahweh. Father, we all have our escapisms. We all have our little devices by which we flee. I pray that you would, under your mighty hand and your tremendous overflowing grace, crush our escapisms so that we will say with the psalmist, I just have one thing that I desire, and that is to dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. Father, may we live in a continual state of a sense of your presence, and may we think that to flee your presence would be the worst possible situation because we find here our home, our happiness, our salvation, and our Father, and our elder brother Jesus, in whose name we pray. Let all of the former and present Jonas say, Amen. God bless you all. Happy Sabbath.